Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you on Thursday, August the 21st. This week we're talking about Ebola, the health and humanitarian crisis in West Africa that has already claimed over 1,200 lives. The first thing we want to say is that at The Lancet we have pulled together all articles, comments, news pieces, an archive going all the way back to the 1970s. The URL for this is www.thelancet-ebola.com. So for anyone working closely with the Ebola crisis in West Africa, we hope this will be a really valuable resource for you. Once again, www.thelancet-ebola.com. And in this podcast, we are going to be talking about two aspects of Ebola content. The main editorial in the upcoming Lancet dated August the 23rd. And also a viewpoint looking at the ethics of experimental therapeutics for the Ebola outbreak. I'll be talking to one of the authors of a viewpoint published today, Thursday, August the 21st. But first of all, let's hear from my colleague Yudani Samrasekara, who's been very much behind the main editorial this week. Earlier, I spoke to her. Yudani, thanks for talking to us. The long leader this week is unsurprisingly focusing on the Ebola situation in West Africa, which clearly is not a health problem. It's a humanitarian crisis. Everyone, I think, understands that. But what is of particular interest, I think, is, is this failure in collective um, global action with the epidemic. Is that the, the, the core message from this editorial, that actually we should have done more up until now? Yes, um, I think that is a key message. What we're calling for now is a, a truly global response to this outbreak. It has been late and, and lacking at the start of it. And it talks quite rightly about the need for collaboration, the international community getting together to tackle tackle this absolute crisis but we often say this actually the international community but what is the international community i mean of course one immediately thinks of the world health organization who are mentioned who have been criticized quite widely for being slow in responding to, to the epidemic but it's not just who there are plenty of key players so there's a, there's responsibility at many many different levels here so can you just give us a bit more detail as to where that responsibility lies and 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 also how how do you tie it all together that's the that's the tricky bit sure so when we say the international community um, in this outbreak uh, in particular we literally mean everyone every country every un agency and every ngo with the capability to send teams of experts in infectious disease control and disaster relief should be offering to do so. They should do this via WHO, who is coordinating the response. MSF has a huge team of 700 in the region, as I mentioned in the editorial, and the US CDC has at least 60, and there are others, but more boots on the ground are urgently needed. More boots on the ground, but coordination too, because of course one thing you do hear, whatever the humanitarian crisis is, and unfortunately there have been many in the past few years, sometimes, yes, it's about the volume and having help out there, but it's also about having coordination because agencies can trip over each other and, and it can be uncoordinated, which can itself be a major problem. Definitely, and yes, that's exactly the, the role of WHO. They are the really the only international UN agency with the capability to coordinate the international response to this outbreak and they are trying to and I'm sure they'll succeed but they need um, those offers of help and more assistance. And financial commitment too because you do mention in the editorial how WHO's funding for crises has been substantially reduced. And then we hear that the World Bank has pledged 
a lot of money. So is it, is it now up to, for example, WHO to work out how to spend that money and to coordinate it? So the World Bank funding was in direct response to the call for, for assistance from WHO and the main affected countries, so Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. So both organisations and the countries should really identify where that money is most needed. Just a final point, of course, I mean, it seems obvious, but again, part of the problem is, is that these crises, these health crises usually exert their impact, their toll, in countries with the weakest health systems. And again, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because if you have a, a very fragile health system, that is the type of health system that, that is the least well equipped to deal with a crisis. So the help coordinated, as you say, through WHO, but requiring responsibility at many, many levels, has to work within a fragile health system. Is it too optimistic to think that help can actually strengthen a health system and actually get it into a better, better shape should the problem ever arise again? That's exactly what it should be looking to do. So there's a need to strengthen health systems immediately in this emergency response because there are also other huge burdens of disease in this country and conditions such as maternal health and malaria. You know, the response to, to those conditions is probably being neglected and suffering because of the focus on Ebola. So there's a need in the emergency response to look at the health system in general, but also to put in place kind of long-term measures so that the health systems are resilient to daily threats as well as future ones. Indeed, great. Well, it's a must-read editorial and it will be on our new online Ebola resource along with uh, the viewpoint which we're just about to discuss. But in the meantime, Yudani Samrasekara, many thanks indeed for talking to us. Thanks, Richard. Now, one of the really contentious issues that no doubt you've read and heard about in the mainstream media is whether we should be using experimental drugs that have no proven efficacy to help treat people affected by the deadly Ebola outbreak. A Viewpoint published today, Thursday, August the 21st, is authored by Dr. Annette Ridd and Professor Ezekiel Emmanuel. Earlier I spoke to Dr. Annette Ridd, who is a senior lecturer in bioethics at King's College London. Can we start off by asking you to give me your view on the global response to the pandemic, which everyone has said all over the media, has, has been very, very slow, but is at last gathering momentum. So I would agree with uh, the coverage thus far that says that the response has been initially much too slow and inadequate. We've not given enough attention and not sent enough people in the field when the first cases were reported um, in late 2013, um, 2014. And attention is now picking up only after the situation has become very difficult to control. Um, and probably at the moment we're underestimating how big the epidemic actually is. And sadly, perhaps only after people from high-income countries were affected. And I also think that even now that the response is picking up, it's not sufficient yet and not moving fast enough. We just had a call from John Yu, from uh, the director of Doctors Without Borders, really calling for urgent attention and sending more people, more supplies, etc. Hopefully with the World Bank having pledged 200 million that will pick up soon. Containment is now the watchword, isn't it, for this epidemic? Although the media initially were very excited about the, the use of experimental drugs, but your viewpoint clearly uh, emphasises the need, that the priority for managing this very serious epidemic is containment, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think the reason for that is twofold. So one is that containment is 
not as exciting as experimental interventions. Um, so it's not high tech uh, and not new, etc. But it does have a proven track record for managing infectious outbreaks, identifying and isolating suspected cases, engaging in infection control, contact tracing and monitoring, surveillance, and importantly, community engagement and raised awareness locally and internationally so as not to drive people underground. I think all these things really do have priority um, because they are proven. Um, that's the first reason. But the second reason is that, in my view, perhaps a little too much attention has been placed on the experimental treatments in vaccines. And I think they will only play um, a marginal role, but they also should play a marginal role. And that has to do with all of the interventions that we're currently looking at are in the earliest phases of investigation. So the risks and benefits really are largely unknown. And if we look on the, look at the track record of interventions generally, on average, only 10% of candidate agents uh, make it uh, from selection to marketing launch. So I think that needs to be taken in consideration that it's more likely than not um, that the interventions that we're currently talking about will actually not work. And then the second issue, of course, is the insufficient supply, given that all of the interventions that currently exist are in the earliest phases of investigation. Supply is a real issue and has been uh, very restricted with um, kind of the key example of this being ZMAP um, with just a handful of interventions, which my understanding is um, have been exhausted now. Okay, so where do you stand um, with the use of experimental drugs at all then? Because your viewpoint clearly states that needs to be evaluated within the context of randomized trials. And that's very understandable and, and is always the evidence-based academic position for any, for any potential drug that hasn't had proven efficacy. Are you saying that experimental drugs have a place at all in the outbreak? I think they do, but uh, I also think that it's key that they be evaluated, given especially that we're talking about all these interventions in sometimes even only uh, the preclinical phase of testing. So I think it's dangerous to think about these as potential treatments or vaccines already, and it's irresponsible in my view to use them on a larger scale without collecting data. I also think this ties back to the issue of very limited supply that would be wasteful to use these very limit, limited amounts of an experimental interventions without collecting data on safety and efficacy. So uh, as I argue with uh, Ezekiel Emanuel from, uh, from UPenn in the viewpoint, we really think that the burden of proof is on those people who would like to use these interventions compassionately outside clinical trials. And if they do, people need to record as much data as possible on patient outcomes and share the data in full and as quickly as possible. What's your view, though? Because healthcare workers have been receiving ZMAP, haven't they, in experimental treatment? So presumably, and I think you do say in, in, in the viewpoint, there is a view that that's justified, given that they are potentially in contact with many, many um, patients with Ebola. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's justified to use the interventions because um, given that there is a situation uh, with a life-threatening disease and no specific treatments, um, though supportive care, it's acceptable to um, assume higher risks and offer riskier and, and not yet proven interventions to people who are affected. But I do think that this should be done um, in the context of clinical trials and then once clinical trials are being conducted, the ethical criteria for those trials also need to be met even though modifications in terms of how they're actually implemented in practice have to be made given the public health emergency.
emergency. One thing I'm, I'm just still slightly puzzled about, I, I think I understand why you've mentioned it in the viewpoint, and that is looking at the role of the randomised trial, which we all know very well, the need for it within this context, within Ebola and experimental drugs, but the role of local communities to have a key role in selection criteria for randomised trials. Is that what you're saying? And if that's the case, how on earth can you achieve that in, in countries with incredibly weak health systems like West Africa? I mean, we've got, we hear about situations whereby Ebola patients just leave hospital and, 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 uh, and, and go home and can't be traced. The contact tracing that you're talking about at the beginning of the interview isn't actually taking place. Is there really the infrastructure for, for local communities to, to play an active role in, in, in the formation of a randomized trial? I think that's a huge practical challenge. I nonetheless think that it's important to bear in mind that it's important to involve communities and to be creative about uh, trying to do that. And of course, there will be limitations because uh, educating uh, people, engaging with the community and ensuring trust, all of these things will be perhaps more important at this point. But if trials go forward, I think it is important to try and engage communities and perhaps use new technologies that don't require direct interaction, etc. And the reason for that is um, that, uh, that as the discussion, the international discussion has made clear, there's a lot of disagreement, some of it reasonable disagreement about how to use these experimental interventions ethically and in that situation kind of involving the people who are actually affected um, gains in importance. And then there is uh, understandably mistrust in the region in research, given if one thinks of the history of the Trojan case uh, in 1996 in Nigeria and general mistrust in healthcare already. And so, so I think in order to address that situation, um, it's really important to try um, and involve the community to the extent feasible. But in summary, in terms of the ethics of the experimental drugs, you don't see that being in any way in conflict with how we prioritise what is occurring at the moment, which is this uh, humanitarian disaster in West Africa. You don't see, uh, if you like, a, a, a pure direction for a randomised trial as being, being in conflict of how we actually manage the crisis at the moment. Well, as I said earlier, I think the, the key priority should be given to Containment and containment measures should be taken uh, with a view to strengthening health systems. And the trials that will get off the ground, I think they will be realistically um, relatively small um, or, you know, in number. I think it is important for those uh, to to try and address uh, involved communities. So just to be clear, randomized trial that you're calling for and the ethics of and the need for a randomised trial, that's clearly going to be of benefit to a future epidemic, sadly. I mean, we hope there isn't one, but there probably will be. It's not going to directly influence the current epidemic in West Africa. But I think given the high uncertainty that currently is there about the risks and benefits of the interventions, we really need to make sure before using them on a larger scale that we have adequate data. Unfortunately, this epidemic, people probably won't, uh, won't benefit from any proven interventions from these trials, but in future ones, people will. Dr. Annette Ridd on the line from King's College London. Thanks very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. Many thanks again to Annette Ridd and to my colleague Yudani Samrasekra. And once again, do look out for our new Lancet Ebola online resource, www 
www.thelancet-ebola.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.